Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. I am uh, talking to you from Fargo. It is still pre-dawn. I'm in the, it's sort of like a basement speakeasy bar space beneath the Hotel Donaldson, which I have to say is kind of one of my favorite hotels. Um, I mean, I wouldn't want to go on an extended vacation here, um, but it's funky. It's cool. The staff is really nice. Um, and it's in downtown Fargo, which, um, you know, anytime I ever mention I'm in Fargo, um, it is an invitation for like a thousand different uh, memes and gifs from the movie and sometimes the TV show Fargo. And um, I always just thought, I just think it's unfair to this town, you know, because first of all, you know, the movie Fargo is really not about Fargo. You know, it's, I mean, there are theories that it's sort of a one hand, the sound of one hand clapping implied about Fargo or whatever. I don't know about all that stuff, but the accents are much more Minnesota. The obsession with Radisson's is much more Minnesota. The, the passive aggressiveness of everybody is much more Minnesota. Um, obviously there's some of that going on in, in North Dakota because a lot of it is the same sort of ethnic groups and his, you know, historic, um, groups and, and, and customs because it's both upper Midwest and all that kind of thing. But, um, Fargo's actually a pretty, I mean, I, I, I'm not an s- expert on it or anything, but I've been here a few times and, um, at least downtown Fargo has got a cool, funky thing going on. There's some, there's some good restaurants. Um, and, uh, anyway, I, 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 I like it here and, um, I want to give a shout out to the hotel Donaldson people because, uh, this is very, very picky nature of my life kind of thing. But I have to do a lot of like podcasts and radio interviews from the road. I mean, a lot fewer radio interviews than I used to, but, um, and sometimes in a, I'm in a hotel and sometimes I'm with my, you know, my wife and my kids, my, my, my wife and my kid or my dogs. And, um, and I'm just looking for someplace out of my room to record something quietly. And, uh, it's just happened to me like a dozen times where I'll be in some hotel and I'll say, Hey, do you have a quiet room to, uh, where I can just, I can, I can do a phone interview or a Skype thing or a TV hit or a radio thing or a podcast. And most of the time, you know, either they do or they, you know, they do or they don't. And if they do, they're generally pretty nice about it. And they just say, Oh, sure. Come use this room or go use this room or whatever. But about a dozen times now, you know, they try to charge me some exorbitant fee to use a room that they're not using. And this happened to me when we were in Bozeman. And it's just, it's, it's just annoying. You know, it's like, um, uh, I get it. Everyone's trying to make money. Hotels are trying to make money and all that kind of stuff. But like, um, you know, even when I'm very clear, I was like, look, I can do this in my car. 
um, or I can, you know, kick my family out of my room. So I'm not interested in paying, you know, any with a range. You know, sometimes they'll charge you two fifty. That's what they want. That's that, that's what they wanted to charge me at a, at a steep discount. They assured me in Bozeman. But sometimes they'll be like fifteen hundred bucks or something like that. And I'm like, I'd rather cancel my, you know, my radio hit than pay you fifteen hundred bucks to use a room that you're not using for, you know, five minutes. And, um, but they're like, you can use it. It's, you know, 1500 bucks for, for four hours. And I was like, well, I don't need it for four hours. I need it for like, like 15 or 20 minutes or an hour or whatever it is. Um, anyway, it's, it's annoying. And, um, so I was talking to the guy at the front desk today, our last, late last night here at the hotel Donaldson. And I was like, um, I may need to use my, we, you know, we, we use the hotel parking. And I was like, how early can I get it out? Um, because I wasn't even going to bother asking him. It didn't seem like this is the kind of hotel that would have that kind of space anyway. And um, because I got to do, um, I told him a conference call, because sometimes when you say podcast, they look at you weird. And um, and I was like, I may need to just take the car out extra early so that I can, you know, do a call, do a conference call from the car. I was like, I was like dude, you don't, don't want to sit out in a cold car doing that. You know, let me find your room. And totally, you know, uh, without charging me, totally cool about it. He set me up in this funky speakeasy basement place. Um, uh, and I tipped him nicely, but he wasn't looking for a tip. He was surprised if he tipped. And it just, that kind of thing just goes a long way with me. Anyway, uh, none of you really wanted to hear that for five minutes. I'm just kind of warming up. Um, so I'll tell you my travel plans later in case anybody is actually interested in all of that. Um, where to begin? Um, so I did some gloating in the Wednesday G file. For those of you who are paid members of the dispatch community, you can read it. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. Um, as, as longtime listeners of this podcast know, I go a little crazy talking about, and I talk about it too much, I know, but it's one of these things where you get this idea in your head and it's very, just, you know, that's one of the reasons why I end up writing books sometimes is this is the only way I can get certain ideas out of my head. Um, uh, you know, I've been railing a lot about, you know, shibboleths and elites and the, the bubble that progressive elites are in with the way they talk about everything from interse intersectionality to birthing person, yada, yada, yada. And I've talked about the polling on this Latin X thing or Latinx or however you're supposed to pronounce this utterly euphonious and incredibly difficult word to pronounce that's that's utterly stupid and and, and again long-time listeners long-time readers know i've been banging my spoon on my high chair about this for a very long time and lo and behold another poll came out um and this big politico piece that you know confirmed the previous polls and really sort of nailed it that the um that not only is latinx stupid in the, I mean, they don't get into the reasons why it's stupid. I think it's stupid to like, on a philosophical level, um, but it's it's stupid on a political level. It, it, they quote some guy. I think I have the quote in the G file, um, saying it violates the demo, you know, it violates the political Hippocratic oath, which is first do no harm, and just like by orders of magnitude. Um, you know, most people don't care whether you use it or don't know what you're talking about. And, I, and I, when I say most people, I mean most people to include Hispanics and non-Hispanics. But among Hispanics, uh, among those who care about the term and know what the term is, uh, they are much less likely to vote for you if you use the term. It actually repels voters. It doesn't attract voters. I mean, David Shore uh, should probably be doing that Ace Ventura pet detective um, you know, I told you, so can you feel that dance about all of, about this thing? And, um, so I went on about it for, for a good bit and I make no apologies for it because, uh, you know, uh, what's the old proverb? If you're not for yourself, who will be, um, uh, I think the saying I told you so, or I informed you thusly every now and then has some um, benefit. Um, but I wanted to, since we're talking about, sorry, I'm distracted. I'm trying to find something that I wanted to talk about. Um, 
Oh yeah. So like, um, there was this, just while we're on immigration for a second, sorry for my fumbling. Um, uh, my friend, Rich Lowry, uh, tweeted the other day. So there was this wall street journal poll. Let me back up. It's a wall street journal poll, very small sample. They talk about it on the commentary podcast. Um, uh, has a finding that says that Hispanics are evenly split between the two parties. Um, entirely possible. It's an outlier. Um, but even, you know, even accounting for outlierness and margin of error and yada, 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 um, in the larger context of, of trends among Hispanics generally, it's just a disaster for Democrats if it's even 70% true because, uh, the, you know, the, the model of the electorate that Democrats depend on depends on, you know, really disproportionate either turnout or disproportionate preference for Democrats among uh, blacks and Hispanics. And if Hispanics start looking just like normal voters, uh, that's just a really big problem for Democrats because Democrats can't make it up with other white voters because they've chased away so many white voters over the last 30 years. Um, you know, one of the weird reasons why I remember talking to, to Democrat, you know, consultant types, campaign people about, you know, the black vote years ago. And, you know, one of the ways you could get around a bunch of laws and just the unseemliness of targeting black voters is that black voters were so disproportionately voted for Democrats that as a matter of statistics, you know, you didn't have to ask any questions of black voters. You could just send, you know, generic voter turnout activists um, to black neighborhoods and say, anybody want to vote? And just put them on the, you know, and just, just drive them to the, the polls. And just statistically, you knew that out of any 10 or 100, you know, out of any 100 African-Americans you could get to the polls, you were going to get at minimum, you know, eight out of 10, nine out of 10 of those votes. And so you didn't have to play games. And I, I've always believed that this was one of the reasons why and it's not exactly a brilliant or conspiratorial insight, but all that rock the vote stuff that I grew up with in the 80s and 90s and all of the, you know, the public service announcements about how vital it is to vote um, and that you don't care what your um, partisan affiliation is or what, who you vote for, but you should just vote. Um, that was always aimed at, uh, you know, young people um, and other demographics that the backers in their more cynical moments completely understood was turning out more Democratic voters than Republican voters. And this is, you know, there was no way you're going to get that kind of enthusiasm from sort of Hollywood and music elites and all that kind of stuff if they actually thought they were turning out Republican votes. But Republican voters were more reliable and they turned out more. Um, and so the, the theory was, not wrong, was that the least reliable, gettable voters um, uh, would vote Democrat if you could get them to vote. And so you could pretend that you were doing this high-minded, you know, I just care that people vote and exercise their citizenship thing, while at the same time, um, it was a get-out Democratic vote effort. But whatever. I, I, we don't need for me to prattle on about my views about voting. Um, anyway, so Rich had this tweet about that, that, that Wall Street Journal poll and said, I should have it in front of me. I'm sorry. It's still very early. Um, said that this just proves that the conventional wisdom that held for so long, I think I'm paraphrasing them fairly, uh, this just holds that the conventional wisdom that um, held that Republicans had to cave on um, the immigration issue or compromise on the immigration issue um, in order to win Hispanics was just wrong. And I think Richard makes an entirely valid point there. I think he's right. Um, I think it's complicated, but I think he's right. It's a perfectly valid point. This is not a criticism of Rich. Um, but since I mentioned the sound of one hand clapping, 
he leaves out, I think, another important point that I don't think he would necessarily disagree with, but I think it's worth pointing out, which is that both Democrats and Republicans, or liberals and conservatives, spent big chunks of the last 30 years insisting that generous immigration policies pushed largely by Democrats were an attempt to import Democratic voters. And there was some basis to believe this. I'm not saying that thing that was entirely wrong. It's sort of like, you know, like the, cons- the point that Rich is making is right, but it's more, I think it's more complicated. This point is right, but it's also more complicated. And for Democrats, they worked on this assumption that this coalition of the ascendant, that people of color were forever uh, going to be part of a democratic progressive coalition was one of the motivating factors behind their expansive views on, on mass immigration. And it was one of the main motivations for a lot of conservatives and Republicans against mass migration. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've heard, you know, and again, this is not necessarily criticism. I'm just stating observed facts. Over the last 20 years, I probably did, was either on or attended a hundred National Review panels on immigration stuff, never mind AI stuff, other DC stuff. I mean, I, I listened to conservatives talk about immigration for a very long time. Um, it is one of the you know, motivating passions of, of both Rich and Ramesh. They make very good points. Ramesh is one of my brains on, on immigration. So I'm not like, there's not a criticism, but um, the, there are large numbers of people on the right who turned against immigration for a lot of different reasons, but one of the primary ones, one of the ones that, um, you know, injected passion and seriousness into the effort was this view that the Democrats were importing voters to have a permanent Democratic majority. And, um, I, you know, and turns out that assumption is wrong too, much like the assumption that voter uh, high voter turnout always ve- benefits Democrats. That's been disproved a few times over the last couple of years. Um, most recently in the Virginia governor's race with Glenn Youngkin, high voter turnout helped Republicans. Um, and I personally think that, you know, there were, there are utterly benign and reasonable, and I think correct reasons to believe that Democrats were trying to do this and to believe that, that, um, you know, that Hispanics were going to be voting, Hispanic immigrants were going to be voting Democrat. And I don't think that that's necessarily an illegitimate reason to be opposed to mass immigration. I think there are other legitimate reasons to be opposed to mass immigration. Um, but one of the reasons why uh, a lot of conservatives believed this is because a lot of serious liberals were saying it outright. I mean, it was a bit of a carom shot, but, you know, Rui Teixeira is a super nice guy, very smart guy. John Judas, who's a weird dude, but brilliant. Um, these guys were out there for years making this argument about the coalition of the ascendant, you know, the emerging non-white majority um, that, you know, ever since, I don't know, what was it, 2000? I can't remember the name of the report. Um, I think it was actually earlier than that. It was in the 90s. But the Hudson Institute, back when it was still in Indiana, had, uh, um, had you know, Workforce 2050 or something. I think that was the title of it. You know, and it predicted that the country would be majority non-white by 2050 or something like that. And, you know, for a lot of my lifetime, people like Jesse Jackson and others pointed to this as um, evidence that Democrats were going to have a permanent um, majority. And people wrote books on this. There were seminars on this. There were politicians who talked about it, albeit somewhat obliquely. And I hated this argument. Um, And I used to work for Ben Wattenberg, who was a uh, self-taught demographer. And, you know, there are, and there are lots of things I learned about demography. Um, But, and there are, but, you know, one of the phrases that Ben loved, I think, I think it was originally coined by Eugene Shamey, but I I can't remember. But it's a phrase you hear a lot from the left to the right about how demography is destiny. 
Um, some demography is destiny. Um, but partisan affiliation, affiliation, you know, uh, punditry is not demography. Like you can know, you know, within a fairly, you know, tight margin of error, how many people there will be, how many Americans there will be in 50 years. If you know how many Americans are born today, how many immigrants you're going to have and what the, you know, the, and what the death rates are for very, you know, the mortality rates are for various conditions and populations. I mean, these are variables that you can figure out. You can't get it down perfectly because there could be a thermonuclear bomb go off and it mess everything up, or there could be some sort of wild, you know, children of men virus that makes everybody sterile or, or, you know, virtual reality could come out with that replaces, you know, the fun of, you know, uh, real world sex, who knows, but, you know, given the inputs, you can make a pretty good guess, um, you know, about what the destined population is going to be and look like 50 years from now. You cannot guess how many Republicans and Democrats are going to be. You can't even get, you cannot even predict, I shouldn't say guess, you can guess, you cannot predict how many, uh, you, you can't even predict whether the Republican or Democratic Party are going to be around. And, you know, I think it was Sean Trendy who first made this point, um, or at least that's where I first heard it, you know, it was about 15 years ago now, 10 years ago, where he was pointing out that, um, you know, Hispanic voters vote, First of all, the Hispanic voters tended to vote Democratic because Hispanic voters are disproportionately poor um, because, you know, they're immigrants and they come here, you know, I say they're immigrants. They're, they're disproportionately from immigration, you know, uh, from immigrant families, um, you know, their first or second generation. And, um, 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 and again, I, I'm, I'm phrasing this wrong because, you know, there have been Hispanics in places like California, Texas, and New Mexico, well, frankly, longer than there have been white people. So, I, you know, I'm not trying to say that they're all immigrants or anything like that. But just as an objective fact, you know, Hispanics are disproportionately uh, low income and disproportionately low income people historically voted Democrat. Um, there are other reasons why, you know, Hispanics might have voted Democrat, but you know, that was the biggest driver. And the thing is, is that Hispanics, as Hispanics moved up the socioeconomic ladder, they became, and they become, to my understanding, this is still true, um, indistinguishable from the median voter, which is to say they don't necessarily all become Republicans, but knowing their ethnicity is as predictive as knowing the ethnicity, it, it becomes less and less predictive of whether or not they're going to be Democrat, you know, in the... Um, and then there's the larger problem is that, that lots of Hispanics identify as white. Um, uh, lots of Hispanics, um, don't really care about these hard racial distinctions in part because they come from very, some come from, uh, very ethnically, you know, uh, diverse heterogeneous communities and they have white people in their family and they have black people in their family. And, um, and they have all the shades in between. And, um, uh, and the whole, my whole, anyway, my whole point about all this is that like Latinx comes out of a worldview that says you can know basically a single variable about a vast and diverse population and make broad and meaningful assumptions about, about that population. And first of all, that's racist. Like, you know, if you tell me, if I say that, you know, because I, that all people with dark skin, like African-Americans, um, if you tell me that I can make sweeping generalizations about what all of them believe and what all of them uh, want from politics and want from life, uh, you know, whether I describe those wants and desires positively or negatively, it doesn't really change for me the idea that that's a racist thing to say and it's a racist thing to believe. And so I think that the, the, the coalition of the ascendant stuff was premised on this idea that melanin contact content or the lack of white skin was a permanent ironclad identitarian marker that meant that Democrats could vote, that, that these people would, would always be part of the Democratic coalition. 
And it turns out, lo and behold, that Hispanics are complicated people because people are complicated people. And um, as the Democratic Party moves off into more rarefied and haughty sort of progressive statism um, and, you know, cultural leftism, a lot of Hispanics um, are saying, you know, who, who other than the fact that their last names are Gonzalez or Castro or Hernandez, and rather than Smith or O'Malley or whatever, um, a lot of Hispanics, um, particularly in like rural areas, have many of the same cultural and religious attitudes that the white working class do. And so they're starting to vote like the white working class. And this was David Shore's point from a long time back. And that's why those, you know, those border districts that everybody thought Republicans were going to lose for a lifetime um, actually started switching and becoming more Republican. Um, so anyway, I, I think that it's a cautionary tale for both the left and the right. And I think that, I mean, it's a real cautionary tale for the left because the left did enormous damage to the Democratic Party making this bet. Because, and this is a point I make in Suicide of the West, um, I can tell you how often progressives would with glee, I mean, Beto O'Rourke used to talk like this all the time, with glee, talk about how great it's going to be when this is a majority non-white country and white supremacy is overthrown and white people can no longer call the shots and all this kind of stuff. And if you go, don't take my word for it, look at the social science from people like Jonathan Haidt and, and, and true progressives like Sherry Berman and Theta Scotchpole and these others. The more you demonize a member of any ethnic group, including white people, which shouldn't be considered one homogenous ethnic group anyway, um, but the more you tell white people, oh, you're evil because of the color of your skin, the more most white people are going to start being defensive and identifying as white. You know, the places where Jews survived with their identity intact the most over the last 2,000 years were the places where they were most persecuted. And, um, and I'm not saying that white people are persecuted. I am saying that white people, when you demonize white people, when you treat all white people as if they're the same, where you assume, where you work from the assumption that a white mechanic in West Virginia has more societal privilege and power than an African-American attorney in Bethesda, Maryland, um, uh, first of all, it's racist, but second of all, it's just going to create bad politics for you. And we've, we, you've, we've seen this across, you know, the last 20 years. And we've also seen this in Europe is that you create a backlash. What is that guy had that book? What was it? White lash or whatever. If you want to make the Republican party, a, the, a permanent contender for power or power holder in this country along lines that I do not like, keep saying that all white people are evil that unless you agree completely with Ibram Kendi and that crowd, you are objectively racist. Keep making those arguments and you'll have um, even more white people flow into the Republican Party for understandable reasons, non-racist reasons. Um, you'll also get more racist in the Republican Party, but that's a different conversation. It's incredibly stupid politics. It's bad for the country. Um, and the reason why you're going to guarantee, you know, if the Republican Party can become, uh, you know, sort of uh, the home for, uh, you know, white people who feel unwelcome by the rhetoric of Democrats and progressives, while also holding on to, you know, even a, 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 sli a significant sliver of, say, Hispanic votes and whatnot, then it'll be the permanent majority party for a very long time. Um, because contrary to what a lot of people think, this is still a majority white country. Um, and you know, it, it's, it's funny. I, every now and then I have to remind my daughter because she gets, you know, hit with all the stuff she got hit with it in high school. She gets hit with it in college, you know, with all this stuff about how, uh, you know, uh, you know, she's part of predominantly white institutions. I remember having this conversation with her a while back because uh, uh, a non-white friend of hers was giving, was on a tear about, you know, how hard it is to be part of predominantly white institutions or something like that. And, um, and I had to point out to my daughter, I was like, well, you do, 
you do know that pretty much most institutions in this country were predominantly white for most of its history and not for racist reasons. Yeah, the Klan was predominantly white for, uh, I would would say predominantly white, just dominantly white um, for uh, racist reasons. But, you know, uh, and, you know, and, and for a while there were a lot of, you know, I mean, like the, the major league baseball, you can make the argument to be sure was predominantly white for racist reasons. But, you know, the, my point is, is that one of the reasons why a lot of these institutions remain predominantly white is that this is still a predominantly white country. And, you know, and I remember my daughter saying, well, you know, how can, you know, how can you say that when, you know, like half the country is black? And it's weird because I've explained this to my daughter a few times. My daughter's not, you know, dumb or forgetful and she's a smart kid. But the way the race is sort of talked about in schools, they make it, you know, because I guess white and black sound, you know, they're they're binary in terms of color. Although I think there's some interesting stuff about what colors are, but whatever. Uh, We're not going to get into the color wheel spectrum stuff. But, you know, because we talk about black and white as a binary thing, it's black and white, it's black or white, you know, that kind of thing. Um, we see, we then import statistical parity. But I mean, I haven't looked it up recently, but I'm pretty sure the African-American population in the United States is like 13%. You know, for most of my life, it was about 10 or 11%. And so the idea that you're going to have, particularly if you're defining it in binary terms, a lot of predominantly black institutions that aren't predominantly black because they want to be predominantly black, most institutions are going to be predominantly white. And that's still going to be true, you know, even when when you start bringing in the whole rainbow coalition of different ethnicities and and whatnot, because, you know, depending on how you measure this stuff and how people ID and you have to tease out, you know, know, the non-white Hispanics from the Hispanics, which is something the census does. Um, this is still as, what is it? I, again, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it's somewhere like a 70%, 68 to 72% somewhere in there, white country. And these distinctions between the races, it's so grotesque to me because the, the people who most want to maintain outside of sort of hardcore neo-Nazi jackwads, um, the, the mainstream people who want to maintain racial categories the most aren't in the Republican party. They're in the Democratic Party. And, um, and these categories are, you know, I'm not saying they're meaningless. They're very meaningful for some people, and they're too meaningful for some people. But, you know, in a country where we have had incredibly high rates of intermarriage for decades, the idea between, you know, blacks and whites, Asians and Hispanics, Asians and whites, blacks and Asians, whatever, um, the idea that somehow these hard racial categories are as meaningful as the identity politics crowd wants them to be is just simply not true. All right. I ranted enough about all of that. Um, I don't even know if I answered the setup that I intended to set up for, but whatever. What else to talk about? Oh, since uh, I was talking about how I get to say I told you so, I got an amazing amount of grief for... Um, including in the comments, uh, that I was peddling disinformation and all this kind of nonsense, um, about, uh, Omicron and it's bizarre. I I can't believe I've been on the road since the Friday before Thanksgiving. And, um, so all that Fox stuff happened and is now sort of like getting memory hold all, you know, and, um, um, and so it's basically, I'm I'm on team Noah Rothman. Noah and I had the same reaction. He got grief for it on the commentary podcast. Um, uh, I think that the Omicron thing was at least partly uh, a m- media hysteria driven by the fact that it came out right before Thanksgiving. And so the only people sort of manning the desks at uh, the various media outlets were the and and also manning their computers and their phones in terms of uh, news consumption are COVID obsessives, and you know the people who just cannot stop looking at the the COVID stat things at Worldometer or the New York Times or wherever, and um, are just mainline addicted to uh, uh, pandemic paranoia, and in, which includes a lot of people in the press. And, um, and so 
Omicron comes out, it's super scary sounding, so many mutations. Um, and the, the, and people panicked and overreacted. And there was a lot of media hysteria, hysteria associated with it. And, um, anyway, I wrote that, of course you should take it seriously and it's all preliminary. Um, but my main point wasn't that I was a hundred percent positive. I wasn't claiming to be an epidemiologist or an infectious disease expert or any of that kind of stuff. I caveated the hell out of it. Um, but I said, you know, my suspicion was that this is going to be an example of what we've been told happens with viruses all the time, which is that they can become more infectious, but less dangerous. Because if you just think about it, you know, this was the, wasn't this the, 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 um, Richard Epstein argument that got him in so much trouble because he was way premature about it. Um, but it is an established fact that this happens, right? Because it, it's not, if you think of the virus as a living organism, which it is, um, it has an evolutionary interest in not killing hosts, right? Think about it this way. Imagine if COVID killed you instantly, like someone sneezes in your face and three seconds later you're dead. Well, that's not very useful to COVID. COVID wants to live in your warm, squishy parts for a long time, like a lot of weird critters do. And so what happens is, is that over time, viruses tend to be these kinds of viruses. I'm sure there are other kinds of viruses that don't. This is just the stuff I've read, right? This is what happened to the Spanish flu. The Spanish flu is still with us. It's basically somewhere between the common cold and the seasonal flu. And um, that's because it got less deadly, in part because we developed immunity to it, but in part because it mutated so that it could hang around longer. And I remember when people were saying that was the old, once the pandemic, you know, once it was a real pandemic and we were like, it's not, we're not going to get rid of it. You know, Fauci has been saying that for two years, you know, that once it, once it got this spread around the globe, the idea of eradicating it, if it ever made any sense was over. So we were going to live with it. And the hope was to develop vaccines and other protocols and treatments that made it so that we can live with it until it, evolved to the point where it wasn't that much of a problem or there we evolved to the point where it wasn't that much problem for us sort of both evolutionary tracks happening simultaneously and you i wrote this what two weeks ago you know the omicron thing looks looked like that to me and and but i said who knows it's early we don't have data yada 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 and then um my real point was that there was nothing, and this I'm much more confident about, you know, there was nothing in the reported facts that had come out in the days after the Omicron, you know, story that demanded that we assume the worst, right? I mean, there's sometimes, like if, like, if people were dropping like flies in South Africa from this thing, you could reasonably assume the worst. Like, oh my God, this thing must be much deadlier. But that wasn't happening. There was nothing happening other than it spreading um, that suggested this was a bigger problem than the Delta variant. And my point was more about the way the sort of public health apparatus and the media want, their, want these stories to be the worst case scenario. And I even allowed for the fact that that's a natural human thing and that there are good reasons for the government to assume the worst and act on that kind of stuff um, because you want the government to be prepared for things. So I wasn't like demonizing anybody. Um, anyway, fast forward today. I was right, or at least I should say. Everything that I was caveating and cautious about um, seems more accurate today than it was when I wrote that. And so uh, my buddy Jim Garrity um, compiles just some of the stuff that we've seen. Um, he points out that Rochelle Walensky, director of this, uh, the CDC, told the AP that the disease is mild in almost all of the 40 detected Omicron cases seen so far with reported symptoms including cough, congestion, and fatigue. One person was hospitalized with Omicron, by Omicron, but no deaths have been reported, according to the CDC, according to the head of the CDC. Uh, in South Africa, 
Quote, the symptoms displayed by patients and net cares hospitals in the epicenter of the current fourth wave um, in the province of, of Gauteng are, quote, far milder than anything we experienced during the first three waves. This is the CEO of the healthcare system. Um, the WHO says emerging data from South Africa suggests increased risk of reinfection with Omicron, um, but says there is also some evidence that Omicron causes milder disease than Delta. And even Anthony Fauci says uh, it's, that it appears to cause less severe illness. Um, and I should say, we should take Delta really seriously because we're back over 1,000 deaths a day. Delta is killing a lot of people. And if you're going to have to root for a variant, root for Omicron to push Delta out of the way. And, um, you know, and the infectiousness of Omicron may cause real problems. I'm not saying that it won't. But better to have a super infectious or super contagious uh, virus that doesn't kill people crowding out a pretty contagious virus that does kill people. And um, um, so I'll just leave it there because I, I, I know I do the I told you so stuff uh, too much, um, but someone's got it. So what else? Um, <sighs> Well, since I'm in an I told you so mode, um, you know, I haven't, uh, I haven't talked much about the Fox stuff or the Tucker stuff, and I'm still not going to yet because Steve and I figured if we're going to talk about it, we should do like one real, maybe two real interviews on it. And then that's sort of about it. Um, but, you know, one of the reasons why, one of the main reasons why um, I left was that, uh, I felt that I couldn't, in good conscience, speak my mind about the really crappy cr stuff that goes on, um, particularly on the opinion side of Fox News. Um, and, uh, and so just because I don't want to dwell, I don't want to become, I really don't want to become a, like a professional Fox basher. I still think the news side does good stuff. I have lots of friends there. I, there are lots of professionals there who agree with me and Steve entirely. Um, uh, and, uh, and, and they want to keep trying to make a Fox a better place. And I, I really want them to succeed. Um, but you know, Tucker said some wild crap the last couple of days. Uh, last night, uh, he did this thing where he said that, um, uh, Mitch McConnell, quote, aggressively took the side of the January 6th committee, as he has from the very beginning. Um, he said that basically uh, that McConnell is, a, you know, is, 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 is technically a Republican, but uh, in reality, he's in, like an instrument of the left or whatever. And this is a, just a great illustration of the kind of crap, the kind of nonsense that um, I just got so fed up with. Um, let's, let's broaden it out for two seconds. One of my great peeves, and this happens on both the left and the right, is to take a single issue and say it is a, um, sort of an existential or definitional, uh, right versus left thing. I'm not saying that those things don't exist. Like, you know, like communism is going to be on the left, right? Um, uh, you know, socialism is of the left, um, though there is, there are sort of, you know, I mean, I'll define my conservatism my way, but my point is, is like, take abortion. I got a lot of heat for this a few years ago. Um, because, um, I'd said like on Twitter or someplace that, um, conservatives don't have to be pro-life. Um, like, you know, I don't know the way I said it was. Um, if you're not that just because you're not pro-life doesn't mean that you're not conservative, you can, you know, first of all, you can just be wrong, right? I mean, conservatives can be wrong about lots of things just as, as liberals can be. But my larger point was that, you know, um, abortion is one of those issues that is actually poorly served by being subsumed entirely into the left, right paradigm. You know, Nat Hentoff, um, a brilliant, very left-wing sort of social democrat, civil libertarian guy who wrote forever for the Village Voice, 
um, used to he was very pro life, and he was pro life for left wing reasons, or I should say, you know, that he fit his pro life attitudes into his larger argument about what the left is about, and he believed in protecting the vulnerable. He he was he was a passionate civil libertarian, so he didn't like the idea of the state deciding who's a human, who's not, who can live, and who can die. Um, and again, lots of left-wingers thought he was wrong on that issue, but you're kind of a buffoon if you think that Nat, Nat Hentoff wasn't of the left or you know, left of center or whatever. And um, what you want is you know, the, the, the best way to affect social change, even though sometimes it's obviously harder, um, and sometimes it's just impossible, but the, be- you know, the ideal way to affect lasting social change is to make certain issues, the issues that you care about nonpartisan, right? Non sort of non-definitional to ideological divides. Um, I'll give you just as an illustration, the NRA used to believe this, right? The NRA um, used to give, I don't know if it was equally, but pretty generously to Democrats and Republicans alike. And the argument was, the strategy was, and they were correct in this, that it's better for gun rights if you have supporters of gun rights in both parties, it's a way to hedge risk in electoral politics. Because if one party is 100% against gun rights and it gets into power, lots of bad things can happen. But if you have um, backing in both parties, it prevents or it, it's, it reduces the risk of, of total catastrophe. And, um, and it also makes it much more difficult to demonize an issue if it's got people on both sides on your side of it. And, you know, the dilemma for the NRA is that thanks to the big sort and growing polarization and the way they needed to raise money and I think a lot of mismanagement things and, you know, and also the way the gun issue, you know, became so thoroughly uh, partisanized or, you know, ideologized or whatever, um, the NRA basically had to become an adjunct of the Republican Party, and or at least they concluded that it had to. And I'm not saying that this is entirely a problem created by Republicans in the NRA. It was in part because the Democrats basically said, you're not welcome. And, um, and so the same thing applies with um, abortion. It would be better for pro-life activists if there were more feminists for life, there are feminists for life. Um, they get ostracized and all that. But you know, if there were more prominent Democrats who were on every other issue still Democrats, but they cared a lot about the unborn, or they thought that at least Roe went too far, it would just be it would be strategically better for the pro life movement. And but the pro life movement has that same sort of problem that the the sort of Second Amendment types had is that it became you know, like so many other issues, you know, a, a zero sum thing, either you're on the Democrat side or you're on the Republican side, and then you're for the maximalist thing. And so those are complicated questions. Those are complicated issues. And I have nothing but sympathy for the, because I know so many pro-lifers and pro-gun people who understand this stuff and were present in the conversations about how to have strategy about this stuff. Um, I'm not saying anything that a lot of those kinds of serious people would disagree with. Which brings me back to Tucker, though, who is profoundly unserious, because what he is trying to do is make support for the Capitol Hill riot, I don't call it an insurrection, support for that riot, definitional to whether you're on the left and the right, to the point where he's arguing that Mitch McConnell, he says something, I'll see if I can find it, Something along the lines of that, that um, Mitch McConnell is an instrument of the left on the issues that matter, right? The um, this idea that somehow uh, the issues that matter that sort of are are essential to being whether you're on the left or the right is whether or not storming the Capitol, taking a crap in the halls of Congress, beating cops up with flagpoles. If you if you don't want to call those people political prisoners you know, who are in some sort of, you know, American Gitmo, as that, you know, ridiculous series he put out claimed. Um, if you don't want to believe that uh, 
you know, this was actually a false flag or agent provocateur operation of the deep state, well, then you are um, on the left. And I cannot begin to express my full contempt for the stupidity of that, the theatrical performative bullshit of that. Um, the idea that Mitch McConnell is a left winger um, because he is insufficiently supportive of the retconning propaganda that says that the January 6th assault was some sort of wonderful thing. Um, okay, yeah, here's the actual quote uh, from Tucker's own tweet with the video that goes with it, we can put it in the show notes. He says, technically, Mitch McConnell was a Republican leader in the United States Senate, but in real life, on the issues that matter, Mitch McConnell is an instrument of the left. Now, first, let's just, let me just be really clear about something. That's a lie. That's not like my opinion, it's a lie. That's not like, oh, we disagree about how we define terms. He's actually, Tucker's actually lying when he says, um, he says in this video uh, that Mitch McConnell has uh, supported the January 6th committee all, commission all along. Um, that's a lie. Um, yeah, he says, he says, Mitch McConnell aggressively took the side of the January 6th committee, quote, as he has from the very beginning. This is what McConnell said in May. I've made the decision to oppose the House Democrats' slanted and unbalanced proposal for another commission to study the events of January 6th. Remember, Mitch McConnell didn't vote to impeach. He criticized Trump, and I think he made a mistake not voting to impeach. I think he made a mistake not supporting the, the January 6th commission. But it's just a lie to say that he has been, you know, on its side from the very beginning. And beyond the lie part, right, the sort of the, the bull um, Mitch McConnell, you know, we, we, you can have this debate about how many of Trump's judges, uh, Supreme Court justices, Mitch McConnell is responsible for, for maneuvering onto the court. I think Gorsuch is obvious, right? Because he didn't, you know, and you know, whether you think McConnell was right or wrong about the Merrick Garland thing, um, Gorsuch, but for Mitch McConnell, Gorsuch would not be on the court. I also think, uh, Brett Kavanaugh would not be on the court without Mitch McConnell, um, because I think Mitch McConnell worked with, um, what's her name, uh, Susan, the main senator, uh, to assure that she would vote for him. You know, he did a lot of work behind the scenes. Amy Coney Barrett, I don't know, um, but you then go down to the, what, hundreds of judges that he got on lower courts. Um, you look at, you know, the various, you know, legislation that he has shepherded through the Senate, whether you agree with it or not, the idea that on the quote, the issues that matter, Mitch McConnell works for the left, first of all, is like huge news to the left. Um, if you can go find some left wingers who agree with that, please let me know. Um, but the only way this back guano crazy nonsense makes any sense is if you delegitimize issues like, I don't know, low taxes, limited government, um, abortion, you know, even supporting the Trump agenda, you know, on trade, which I disagree with McConnell about that stuff, even though I think McConnell is probably a free trader and he was just, you know, picking his battles. But like, even if you define, as a lot of people do, supporting Trump as the essence of conservatism, which I think is incredibly destructive and dysfunctional and, and celebrity worship and cult of personality nonsense. But I get it. There are smart people who think, you know, Trump is the savior of the Republican Party and the conservative movement, and you have to be all in for him. Even if you define conservatism as that, Mitch McConnell has done more for, quote unquote, you know, conservatism rightly understood than certainly than Tucker has. And the idea that like January 6th was in Trump's interest is, of course, lunacy. Um, you know, if, if anything hurt his chances of getting reelected that he did after, you know, a, election night, that has to be the top of the list. And so this he's taking, you know, Tucker has a conspiratorial propagandistic nonsense position about January 6th that got even more beclown this week where 
you know, he had, I guess on Monday, this McBride guy who's a lawyer who's in the Patriot Purge dock and is a conspiracy theorist guy trying to defend some of the guys who were in, um, in jail for January 6th. And that guy is saying, you know, points, literally points to one of the, one of these crazies from January 6th and says, that guy's, that's a government agent. That's an agent provocateur. You know, this is a big part of the, the Tucker argument. I shouldn't say argument. This is a big part of the Tucker, you know, smear job is that this was all, you know, uh, a setup. It's amazing, by the way, I'll get back to that in a second. It is amazing, by the way, how the meaning and the moral salience of January 6th keeps changing. When the, when the first BS lie was, oh, this was all done by Antifa and BLM people to make Republicans look bad or make Trump supporters look bad. The underlying assumption that this was bad, right? These images are bad, and we must explain them by saying somebody else did it because this is bad. And um, and then the argument became no, 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 no. Um, since the Antifa and BLM evidence was non-existent and they didn't do it, it had to be the state doing it, the government doing it. You know, the FBI, the deep state, the DC police. There's a lot of different, you know non-flack that they throw around on this. And that's supposed to be bad. And now the argument is, well, no, if it really was Trump people, it was good. And it is outrageous and evil to prosecute these people as, you know, uh, political dissidents, yada, 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 you know, pick a friggin' lane and defend it. Um, and anyway, so this McBride guy, you know, Tucker and this guest, they made it sound like, okay, here is the, here is your, you know, your smoking gun and evidence that um, government agents goaded these otherwise peaceful and decent people into doing violent things. Um, as if like these people are just sheep and you can, you can, and that you should forgive them for, you know, dropping a deuce in various congressional offices and smearing it on walls or, you know, smashing things or stealing things or beating up cops. If, you know, if the deep state, you know, riled them up, then, then, then that's forgivable or something. Um, and they, so they pointed to this dude with red face, you know, and said, that guy is clearly a government agent. Well, like the Huffington Post of all places found out that he's like a St. Louis Cardinals super fan who runs around, you know, encouraging crowds. He's a big MAGA guy. Apparently he's got some mental health problems, um, and a huge Tucker fan. And, um, when confronted about this, this lawyer, you know, at first was like, you know, trying to defend it. And eventually he just basically gave up the ghost and admitted he's just spreading BS around to defend his clients, which I think is not great. But why the hell are the, why the hell is Fox allowing that garbage on TV? Why is it putting it out there as if it has news value when it is all propaganda nonsense? And it's used in service of claiming that, you know, the test of true loyalty to conservatism or the Republican cause or whatever um, is belief in this nuttery. It is no, it would be no different than, you know, uh, saying that, you, that all true conservatives have to believe in, you know, uh, JFK conspiracy theories or that Colonel Sanders puts a chemical in chicken that makes you crave it fortnightly. Um, this is the, this is the, the, the corruption and decadence that is, it is happening to conservatism in America, where you can say that people, pragmatists and institutionalists who advance the ball incrementally on constitutionalism and pro-life causes and gun rights and all these things, whether you agree fully with those issues or the Republican position on those issues, that Mitch McConnell has done all of those things, um, you know, and I have my disagreements with them again, but like to say that Mitch McConnell is an instrument of the left on quote, the issues that matter. And then say the, the proof of that is because he didn't do enough. It's, the whole thing is because he didn't do enough to like protect some jackwad who was involved in January 6th um, uh, from being involved in something or, I mean, like whatever, it doesn't matter. Like, Fidelity to Tucker's lie and Trump's lie about January 6th, um, if that's the litmus test of conservatism, then conservatism is friggin' doomed, and it deserves to be. Um, 
anyway, I got to go. We got to get back on the road. My plan was to actually fly home from Minneapolis today and my wife would do the rest of the drive, but it looks like we're going to get a blizzard or something like that. Um, so who knows what's going to happen. Um, uh, I, I apologize if I was especially incoherent this morning because like I'm overtired and it's a weird room to be in and I've been up since four o'clock this morning. Um, and other than that, I look forward to the next time talking to you guys. It'll be from my actual home, knock on wood. And, um, um, and thank, thanks again for all the support, all the rest, please become a, you know, paid member of the dispatch community if you can. And with that, I'll see you next time. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.